Hey, Pulse FM. We're coming to you all this week with a topic that's concerning for all of us, but especially those of us in the Latino community. You've been seeing the news. Our books are being banned, and we're actually coming right off of the heels of Banned Book Week. Here in Florida, where I live, it is especially tough. We lead the country in probably one of the worst stats you can lead with. We have the most banned books out of the 50 states. 1,400 books have been banned since July 2022, and the bans keep on coming. Our governor and a lot of local officials really have a war on our freedom to read. It affects our schools, it's affecting teachers, it's affecting how parents are raising our kids. It is just such a tough time, Maribel, for so many of us trying to make sure that our kids get the best education possible. And unfortunately, here in Arizona, Liz, we're not that far behind. The Senate just passed a bill this year which would allow parents to request banning of any books that discuss things like gender fluidity or any gender pronouns, which is weird because essentially that means that any book that uses he or she or they could possibly be banned, according to this. Now, I doubt that Governor Katie Hobbs will sign this into law, hoping, you know, that she uh, will be the voice of reason here. But it is still a waiting house consideration. And that's really scary. And Maribel, as long as those of us in our respective states don't let these things happen, I think there's always hope. As we grapple with all of these challenging affronts to our freedoms that we're living in 2023, we can take a page from history and definitely gain inspiration from Latinos who were fighting these same kinds of issues and did it heroically, courageously, and make me so proud. This episode is a story from a dramatic and sometimes forgotten chapter in Arizona history. You all are going to hear about a time where the Latino community had to stand up and come together to protect our history, a time when students chained themselves to chairs and self-named book smugglers smuggled banned books through the state, all to fight a racist law and keep access to the books they called their own. You're listening to the Pulsa Podcast. We'll be right back. The early 2010s were a tough time to be Latino in Arizona. They were terrified for their communities. You know, it's they were afraid that they were going to get pulled over, harassed by the police. It was just a real vibe of fear around Phoenix. That's Hank Stevenson, a reporter who's been covering politics in Arizona for the past 15 years. He remembers this period well. It was the era of SB 1070, better known as the Show Me Your Papers Act, a law that allowed police to racially profile Latinos and arrest anyone without papers. And of course, this was also when Joe Arpaio was the sheriff of Maricopa County. Nobody is higher than me. I am the elected sheriff by the people. I don't serve any governor. Yes, the same Joe Arpaio who was convicted of criminal contempt for disobeying a federal judge's order to stop illegally profiling and detaining Latinos. He was later sentenced to prison before being pardoned by former President Donald Trump. It was a tough time for many of our community in Arizona. Queer Latino author Manuel Muñoz had just moved to Tucson to teach at the University of Arizona. I was living in New York City when I took the job, and so when I moved, the change in political climate was really startling to me. The atmosphere in the state was one of intimidation. Manuel was teaching at the University of Arizona's campus in Tucson, right across the street from Tucson High School, where one of his books, Zigzagger, sat on the shelf of a classroom that was teaching a very special course, Mexican-American Studies. 
In light of all the difficulty, division, and racism in the state, young Latino students at Tucson High School were struggling, and many felt completely disconnected from the school curriculum. But some of them found an oasis in the form of a new Mexican-American studies class being offered. Here's Hank again. This gave them something to be excited about. It formed a community. It empowered students who generally didn't feel like they had a whole lot of authority over their own lives or their own fates. This program created by teacher Curtis Acosta in 1998 slowly picked up pace through the early 2000s. It was initially created to fulfill an anti-desegregation court order from a lawsuit filed against the school district in the 1970s. The program was a way to help remedy, quote, existing effects of past discriminatory acts and policies. And for the first time, these students felt like school actually applied to their lives. They were learning about something they could relate to and made them feel like they belonged. They studied history from a Mexican-American and indigenous lens, Chicano art and literature. They researched government policy and would even submit proposals to lawmakers. It engaged students on a deep level and taught them how to think critically. It was their first kind of interaction with these adult concepts of why is my neighborhood poor? Why are all the brown neighborhoods poor? It was a framework to teach students about not only their history, but the history of racism, oppression. And the students who attended the Mexican-American studies classes saw significant improvements in their graduation rates and test scores. You even saw things like math scores increase. The only explanation really is, is that they care more about school, that they feel like, you know, they're there for a reason. By all criteria, the program was a success. It was engaging and helping young Latino students, and up until 2006, it wasn't at all on the radar of lawmakers. But that was about to change. There was a storm coming, and the teachers and students who taught the class were about to be in the middle of a political hurricane. Dolores Huerta, the famous Chicano civil rights activist, paid a visit to Tucson High School to speak to the students. She gave a speech in the auditorium in which she said, Republicans hate Latinos. Those three words set off this fire of rage against the Mexican-American Studies program, and that kicked off this entire war. State School Superintendent Tom Horn wants to end ethnic studies programs. I'm calling on Tucson Unified School District to shut down the ethnic studies program. Yeah, right. They won't use my tax dollars to promote teaching of hate speech, sedition. The program is administered by vehemently anti-American zealots. For the next few years, the Republican establishment in Arizona went after the Tucson High School Mexican-American Studies program. They publicly called it a training ground for Marxist foot soldiers and a sweatshop for liberalism. They claimed the classes were radicalizing students and cried that even allowing an ethnic studies program to exist was a form of racism. The Mexican-American Studies program, which was itself created as a response to racist policies, was now in the crosshairs of another racist policy. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jose Cardenas. After signing the state's new immigration law, Governor Brewer signs another controversial piece of legislation, House Bill 2281, ending ethnic studies classes. The bill makes it illegal for school... Tom Horn, the state superintendent of public instruction, led the charge. And finally, in May 2010, just a month after the Show Me Your Papers Act was passed, the state legislator passed HB 2281, a bill aimed at crushing ethnic minority classes in Arizona. 
Later in the year, Tom Horn set his sights on becoming attorney general, and a state senator named John Hoopenthal won the election to become the new state superintendent of public instruction. His entire campaign was run on a platform of, quote, stopping la raza and promising to stamp out these programs. And once elected, he ordered a special report to investigate whether the Mexican-American Studies program did actually violate this new law. The report came back finding no evidence of the program being in violation of the law, but that wasn't the answer Hoopenthal wanted to hear. And as a superintendent, he had the power to decide what would happen next. The school district was essentially it threatened to take away about 10% of their total state funding if it didn't stop teaching these anti-American classes. It's a huge chunk of money for a district that is already pretty poor. So without any other options, the school board scheduled a meeting to discuss the dissolution of their incredibly popular Mexican-American studies program in a district that was over 60% Latino. But the students, whose class was about to be taken away, had been studying civil rights movements and civil disobedience. The class that was supposed to teach them about movements of the past was now a direct lesson on the civil rights of their own time. And the students didn't take that assault on their education lying down. They stormed the school board meeting. They chained themselves to the dais. They locked themselves into the school board members' chairs and started chanting, our education is under attack. What do we do? Fight back. It was, it was a hell of a scene. Protests continued again and again as the Latino community gathered together to fight the ban. But John Hoopenthal was determined to crush the program. This is a clip from one of the students from a Vice documentary. We were in Curtis Acosta's class when they walked in with boxes and they actually started taking some of the books. And that was the point where a lot of my classmates were like, this is it. When are we ever going to see these again? The classes were ended, and administrators literally pulled books off the shelves of the classroom walls. Books like Elizabeth Martinez's 500 Years of Chicano History, Sandra Cisneros' classic The House on Mango Street, even Shakespeare's play The Tempest was banned from the school. Manuel Muñoz, the author and professor at University of Arizona we met at the beginning of this episode, well, his book Zigzagger was also pulled off the shelf at Tucson High, right across the street from where he was teaching. It was such an insidious thing to have happening, literally right across the street from our own campus. If we're going to be in a space where access to literature is restricted to this degree, why do I want to live here? Why do I want to teach here? But what the book banners didn't expect was that by trying to strip away the identity of Arizona Latinos, they were only activating the community even more. They said, no, we're not going to let our books get taken. This is our identity. We're not going to let it be boxed up. And uh, they packed these books away in their little backpacks that turned big and heavy. And like this, the resistance was born. Students smuggled the books out of the school to create underground libraries. Manuel helped organize a banned book reading to a packed house at the University of Arizona. And as news spread throughout the country, it reached the ears of Tony Diaz down in Houston, Texas. We found out that administrators were forcing educators to walk into classrooms and in front of our youth, box up books by some of our most beloved authors in front of them. 
For Tony, this was an absolute crime because books were his life and passion. He'd had his first writings, quote, published, unquote, when he was six years old. It was a rhyming poem. And I think one of the classic lines was something like, um, otherwise I would be a brat. I don't think my parents would like that. That's all I can remember from this powerful, epic poem. (laughs) His teacher loved it and told him that they were going to publish it in the school newspaper. That didn't mean anything to me at the time. I'm like, okay, she's nice to me. Cool. But later that day in the cafeteria, the reality hit him. Just under the hot lunch menu for Sloppy Joe's was my poem. And... All of a sudden, teachers were coming up to me. Antonio, I didn't know you were a writer. Wow, this is really fantastic. I didn't know you were so smart. And it blew my mind because I was the same person, but just this one piece of paper had changed their perception of me. I thought, okay, there was something to this thing called writing. And ever since then, he was hooked. And so Tony read and he wrote voraciously. After finishing high school in his hometown of Chicago, he went to Houston and became the first Chicano to earn a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from the University of Houston Creative Writing Program. Then he founded a nonprofit organization called Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say. That brought Latino writers together to organize. They led the largest book fairs in Houston, which had over 30,000 people. They hosted a radio show and community events. And so when he and his fellow book lovers at Nuestra Palabra heard about what was going on, it was personal. Personally, when I found out that our history and culture was banned in Arizona, I was enraged, humiliated, stunned, ready to act. So Tony and the other members of Nuestra Palabra, Brian Parras, Liana Lopez, Lupe Mendez, and Laura Costa, all got together to decide what they could do about it. We were mad, angry, and fired up, and we were brainstorming all this because I had benefited from the very thing that right-wing Republican legislators were trying to ban. I had the intellectual capacity to think outside the box because I was surrounded by writers, by books, We had a way to creatively respond. And this is how the Libro Traficantes were born. The term Libro Traficante, as you will recall from your Spanish class in high school, is composed of the word book for libro and trafficker. (laughs) Tony and his crew literally became book traffickers. My name is Tony Diaz and I'm a Libro Traficante. It makes people pause and say, why is the word smuggling associated with books? So the Libro Traficante team gathered together hundreds of what they lovingly referred to as wet books full of dangerous, mind-altering prose, and they went on the road. While other states banned literature, we have the banned authors among us. Contraband people. They drove a bus from city to city and hosted banned book bashes, where they would have authors and poets read passages from their banned books. If you remember the civil rights movement, it was based on poetry, art, literature. Only art can save us. 
we, we had about $20,000 worth of books on that bus. Like some of the seats were just full of books right and left. People keep bringing books after books. It was beautiful. They traveled from Houston to San Antonio to El Paso, Mesilla, New Mexico, Albuquerque, and finally Tucson. On the stops, they read banned books, created community underground libraries, and rallied the community. People would come and donate books, donate money. Some people would hand us cash. Some people would write a check. Some people would say, here's some food. By this point, the national media and the wider Latino community had become aware of what was going on, which raised the stakes even higher. Because the Mexican-American Studies program had been put in place as part of an anti-discrimination lawsuit, a court ordered that there had to be some kind of replacement. So a new, watered-down version of the class was reinstated under the close watch of John Hoopenthal. Here's Hank again. Hoopenthal sent monitors to classes to keep an eye on the teachers and read their lessons plans. Some of the teachers had to undergo retraining to unlearn some of the tactics that they had employed during the height of the Mexican-American studies movement. It was big government watching as these classes came back online. But meanwhile, a lawsuit against the order had been moving through the court system. The case was kicked around for years in district courts until it finally made it to the federal district court in 2017, where once and for all, the fate of the Tucson High Mexican-American Studies program would be decided. Good morning. May it please the court. First, this is a law that prohibits speech and does so in a tremendously overbroad and vague way. It's also a law that was motivated and that was implemented with a discriminatory animus against Mexican-Americans. Lawyers for the state of Arizona claimed that the Mexican-American Studies program promoted ethnic solidarity over national unity and that it provided an unbalanced curriculum. Lawyers in support of the program argued that the ban violated free speech and academic freedom and provided a valuable culturally relevant education with a proven track record of helping Mexican-American students succeed. During the hearings, it was brought up that, yep, John Hoopenthal, the main force behind the ban, had been posting deeply troubling comments on an anonymous blog. He had referred to food stamp recipients as lazy pigs, railed against Spanish radio stations, billboards, and TV channels. He even went so far as to call the Mexican-American Studies program the Ku Klux Klan in a different color and referred to its teachers as skinheads. A legal victory tonight for those who fought to restore the program. A federal judge has ruled racism was the basis for state school officials working to shut down the MAS program. Judge Wallace Takashima. Finally, seven years after Arizona Republicans passed the law, a federal judge ruled that students' First Amendment rights had been violated by the law because they were denied the right to receive information and ideas and that their 14th Amendment rights were violated because the decision discriminated against Latinos and that the law was motivated by racial animus. And Arizona was permanently barred from enacting the law. When Tony heard the news, he was thrilled. I cannot really convey the, the joy I felt for, for so many reasons. It was a lifting of this oppressive veil that we had to suffer. It was amazing and powerful to see our power, but it still takes a toll, you know. For Manuel, it was a very bittersweet victory. I'll be honest with you, I was sad. I was sad. I mean, I was relieved, of course, but imagine somebody who's 11 or 12 years old who goes through a seven-year process 
at the end of it, they're 18, 19. Those are lost years. That's a whole generation of students who didn't get that chance. And it, it makes me sad and it makes me angry. There is no rebuilding a moment, you know? You can rebuild a program, but this was far more than a program in its height. It was a movement. In so many ways, we can call the Tucson chapter a victory for the Latino community. It was a time when we stood together and overcame a vicious attack on our culture. It raised the profile for Latino studies programs, which then spread to other states throughout the country. But today, we are seeing a whole new wave of book bans, censorship, and repression of education. The attack on our history and culture is cyclical. It's clear to me that those who want to take books out of the hands of our community will never ban Mexican-American studies directly again. Why? Because we united and we won. So then their answer is, let's come up with a different way to stifle intellectual freedom. And this new wave is a whole different ball game. Today's attacks look very different than they did a decade ago. Ten years ago, the Republican legislatures were attacking a specific program. Today, they're attacking a ghost, a critical race theory that isn't even being taught in schools. Normal books from LGBTQ authors are labeled as sexually perverted. School boards are being taken over, and even public libraries aren't immune to the attacks on our books. But in some respects, they are very similar to 10 years ago. It's the same. It is the same kind of attempt to control what the students are learning about history. What's common then and now, there are folks that want to destabilize our communities. There are folks that want to get books out of the hands of our community. You go to books for answers. You go to books for questions that you might have in private. Where do students go when they have questions and they trust books to give them those answers? There's no easy solution to the challenges we're facing today. Censorship and book bans are dangerous, and they can have serious consequences for our democracy. Once we let them happen, it can be very hard to go back. One way to stand up for freedom of education is to vote in politicians who believe in freedom of education and vote out those who repress it. And just like the students and parents who stood up at Tucson High School, like the Manuels and the Tonys of the world, like the Chicano activists of the 1970s before them, and the United Farm Workers before them, we also can stand up for what we care about. When people hear the word activism, they think that it has to be the six-city tour <laughs> smuggling bad books. It does not have to be that. If you have the capacity to get three books and donate them to three students, you should do that. If you can donate 25 bucks to someone fighting a court case, you need to do that. We as Libertad Figantes turn that rage into activism, and that's the power of art. Do we feel important enough to tell our story? That answer better be yes. You can subscribe to the Pulso Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to give us a listen. Have questions or story ideas to send our way? Send us an email to info at projectpulso.org. This episode was produced and written by Charlie Garcia. It was edited by Jackie Nowak. Audio engineering and mixing by Charlie Garcia and Julian Blackmore. The hosts of the Pulso podcast are Maribel Quesada-Smith and me, Liz Alarcón. 
Hey, Pulso fam. I want to tell you all about Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta podcast about language, culture, and communication. Have you ever wondered what your cat is trying to tell you? Or how Disney Pixar writers craft stories that resonate across numerous languages? Atlas Lingue host Luis Lopez explores these topics and so much more. It's a show about the confusing, wonderful, and weird world of language, and this season, they're diving deep into the language of culture online. They're interviewing content creators from different countries who document their daily lives and cultural backgrounds on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. New episodes air every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch all the interviews on their YouTube channel at 80 Podcasts.